I want to begin the continuation of last week's message. So if you miss that, uh, you're coming in halfway through that message, for which I apologize, but that's just the way it is. I want to begin, though, first, before we jump into 1 Samuel, with words from the Apostle Paul to the Church of Corinth, which, as you know, if you're reading your Bible, was a really messed up church. He's very clear about it. In fact, his reasons for writing the church was as strong and harsh admonitions and warnings from the Lord himself as a prophetic voice enjoining them to repent and get their act together. But in 2 Corinthians, he opens up with a little different tone, and he starts right out in chapter 1, verse 20, talking about how all the promises of God find their yes in him, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why he says it is through him, Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Paul understands that it's not always easy to hear exhortation. But it is part of his divine mission, as frankly it is part of the divine mission of every preacher that gets behind a pulpit. Unfortunately, that's not often played out today. And the church is suffering because of it. It is not an envious task, but it is one that is done in love. And so again, I want to preface this entire message simply by saying that none of us are getting into heaven because of our proficiency in this life of faith. We are not saved by our works. Thank you, Jesus, for Jesus, our Lord and Savior, if he is indeed, has provided everything, the righteousness in all meeting the Father's demands that we could never give. Does God want us to grow in love and obedience? Absolutely, because that is part of our living testimony. But even as much as that, it's because the reason he's granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness is because he loves us. And it's not just grit your teeth and hang on for dear life in this world because one day you will die, and if you die in faith in me, then you'll go to heaven. So just bear with it. No, Jesus said in John 10, I come to give you life and to give it to you more abundant. Samuel is dropped off as a little child in the care of the priest, Eli, who happens to be the father of two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, described in the word for all eternity as worthless sons. The Hebrew does not translate well because the indictment on them by God himself is far more serious than simply meaning worthless And they are, in fact, so worthless that, as we looked at last week, God pronounces the death sentence upon them by him. And Eli the priest, who was, in fact, the high priest of the day, was in some ways even worse than his worthless sons because he was a worthless father. And as the saying sometimes goes, at least I heard very early on in my Christian life, we reproduce after our own kind. Again, this is all by way of review. What we tend not to think about 
is that the word of God is the only thing that is going to last beyond this earth once it is destroyed and the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in. And why do I say that? Because in the Gospel of Matthew, verse 24, 35, it says, Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus says, but my words abide forever. So the eternal assessment of Eli and his two sons are that they are despicable human beings and God has a contract out on them. And that being part of the inspired, infallible, and authoritative word of God is for all time. The last thing that I read when we were together is God giving distressing news to Eli. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 29, this is what we read. God speaking through a prophet to Eli, Why, Eli, do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling? And you honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel. It is not difficult to read between the lines to find that Eli's parental flaw was putting his children before the Lord. That is not a stretch. That is not asegesis, which is infusing into the text something that I wish to be there. It is exegesis pulling out of the text what is clearly there. Therefore, is the way the very next verse starts, verse 30, and we continue now through verse 36. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. The therefore is now because of the way you are, your wretchedness and the wretched sons that you raised, here are now the real life consequences. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for Israel and an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be the sign to you, Eli, which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, unlike you, Eli, who will do according to what is in my heart and my soul. And I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed always, Everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, please assign me to one of the priest's offices just so that I may get a piece of bread, so that I may have food, so that I may eat and not starve. Last week, you may remember that I mentioned how at times when reading a pattern in the scriptures kind of jump out at you. And I explained that the pattern in the text is comparing Eli's worthless sons to Samuel, the good son. What I didn't recognize myself, and this could be a day that goes down in, not infamy, but fummy, what I, where a commentary was actually helpful. That should be funny. Ha ha. 
<laughs> thank you. Thank you. So what we have is, in fact, a pattern, but the pattern is called a chiasm. Uh, let me get my faithful laser pointer. Oh, okay. Now, this is the text condensed with the references beside them. These are the exact verses that I talked about last week forming a pattern. Again, I was not, was not thinking in terms of a chiasm or chiastic structure it is called. What is a chiasm? This isn't to, meant to be a, a, head, a, a head explosion, but again, to make you more proficient in discerning the word of God for yourselves. It is a literary device that is established, and it doesn't just occur in the Bible. You can find it in the Iliad and the Odyssey and Homer and uh, writings of classical literature. You will see here that what we're going to call the, the, the phrase here, the, A, is the Song of Hannah, concluding with reference to the Lord's anointed. B, Samuel ministers before the Lord. C, the sins of Eli's sons. D, Samuel ministers before the Lord. E, Eli blesses Samuel's parents. But now look, all of a sudden we're back to D again. Well, what we're going to find is that as the text proceeds, this D is the same subject matter, if you will, underscoring and undergirding this D. Samuel grows in the Lord's presence. What was this? Samuel ministers before the Lord. Now see, the sins of Eli's sons are brought up again. The sins of Eli's sons are brought up here before that. And now we go to B, Samuel grows in the presence of the Lord, and then A, the oracle of the man of God, concluding with reference to the Lord's anointed, which goes right back to this A. It is not coincidental. It is literary structure meant to underscore the elements that I simply said to you. Now, what we're doing here is it's going, look, you got Elkanah and Hannah's sons, the good son Samuel, and then you got Eli and his wicked sons. And then you got Eli, wicked, Eli, wicked, good, wicked, good, wicked. But now, and this is even more interesting to some, <laughs> is that right sandwiched in the middle of this chiasm is Eli blesses Samuel's parents, but there is no corresponding E. It is purposely there, highlighted, stuck out, unpaired, all by itself, as if to put it in bold print. And what is in bold print right between these two, which are repetitious, is how Eli blesses Samuel's parents, which is actually, again, God, through Eli, blessing Samuel's parents for being the good parents and raising up the good, faithful son, Elkanah. All right. Um, that's enough. That's as heady as it's going to get this morning. All right, so now as we work our way through the text, a chapter break occurs at chapter 3, and what's going to happen now is there's going to be a change in focus in the narrative from what we've been talking about and what's there to now focusing from the wayward ones, namely Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, to the faithful ones, specifically Samuel, Hannah, and Elkanah. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. What a fitting segue by coincidence concerning my message this morning, because indeed from this point on in the message for the rest of the morning, the word of God is going to be in short supply. It's going to be rare. 
It's not an unnecessary rabbit trail. It is, again, to make the word of God practical. There is, when reading the Bible and when understanding the Bible, there is obviously, and what is first and foremost important, is the application that is right there in the text, interpreting it in the context in which it occurs. But then you can jump beyond that. It has to be done legitimately so to what is called derivative application. You'll see what I mean, I think. We ended our last time with urging and illustrating the importance of parents being parents and fathers being fathers to the extent that the Bible demands we be. And now, as I just showed you through the chiasm, the passage underscores God's blessing is upon the faithfulness of such families who faithfully try to live according to God's guide for life, knowing full well that we are all going to blow it time and time again until the Lord takes us to heaven or returns, whichever happens first. And that is why, alluding to Paul's statement at the outset of this, is why we say amen to God's very words because All things find their yes in our Savior, in our substitute Jesus. Eli, for whatever reasons, was more concerned, verse 29, back to chapter 2, with honoring his sons than he was the Lord. And what was clear, clear from the text last week is that Eli indulged his sons, contributing to their sins, which God takes very personally. While it would be easy and appropriate to drive that into the ground concerning the state of the family in the church that wears Christ's name, I think the word does it much more effectively than I ever could. The tragic situation of our world today is not only our good fathers in short supply when they are present in the home, but they are in short supply in the home. And by the way, I want to give this caveat that this is, especially now in our generation and culture, is not excluding mothers who are absent from the home, who are working and don't really have to be working when they have little ones in the home. But what is the very reason for so many mothers having to work today? It's all interconnected. 43% of children in this country live without a father. In the state of Maine, because our population is very low compared to most states, 85,000 nevertheless live without their biological father. And when the secular media even starts to notice these kinds of things, you know that the situation is dire. Parents being parents are at an unprecedented low. I've extracted an article, or at least part of an article, from the Washington Times that is now five years old, and things have not gotten better, I assure you. Nicole Hawkins' three daughters have matching glittery boots, but none has the same father. Each has uniquely colored ties in her hair, but none has a dad present in her life. As another single mother on Sumner Road decked her row house stoop with Christmas lights and a plastic Santa, Miss Hawkins recalled that her middle child's father has never spent a holiday or a birthday with her. In her neighborhood, one in ten children live with both parents. 
one in 10. And 84% live with only their mother. In every state, the portion of families where children have two parents rather than one has dropped significantly over the past decade, even as the country added 160,000 families with children, the number of two-parent households decreased by 1.2 million. 15 million U.S. children, or one in three, this was five years ago, live without a father, and nearly five million live without a mother. In 1960, just 11% of American children lived in homes without fathers. I don't remember if I mentioned Ronnie Redfield last week. He was my buddy in fifth grade, maybe. And he was the only individual I knew. And it was, I remember it was right, like, I, I don't know, that I didn't quite know how to take it. I never saw a dad around. And my mother explained to me that they were divorced. And I don't remember if I even knew what that actually meant. All growing up, the only one I knew that only had one parent in the house. America is awash in poverty, crime, drugs, and other problems. But more than perhaps anything else, it all comes down to this, said Vincent DeCaro, vice president of the National Fatherhood Initiative. Deal with absent fathers, and the rest follows. People look at a child in need, in poverty, or failing in school, and they ask, what can we do to help? But what we ask is, why does that child need help in the first place? And the answer is often it's because the child lacks a responsible and involved father, he said. Without taking a weeks-long diversion from our text explaining the history of the demise of the American family, I do want to highlight two pivotal epochs in our nation's history that have been and are still foundational to understanding at least why we are where we are, and it comes down to two cultural changes. They are the decreasing expectations on children and the handing over of parental responsibility to the public school, which also includes daycare. The patriarchs of public education had a vision all along, believing that with the power of influence over children, meaning the sheer number of hours that they spend in a classroom every day as opposed to the parents, that they could raise up a whole new world where the silly superstitions of religion, as far as they were concerned, the cause and the source of all evil in the world could be eradicated. Enter John Lennon, 1971, the year that Barbara and I graduated high school, released his song, Imagine. It could very well be the global anthem for Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, which if you know anything about that book, it was written back in the 1800s. Oh, my head. What a prescient writing, meaning foretelling the future. This is what Lenin wrote. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. 
nothing to to kill or die for, and no religion to. Imagine all the people living in peace. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. It could have been written today. Stripping away the secular humanistic ideals of Lenin's dream, what we find is a craving and a dream about the very promises possible only through the incarnation of Emmanuel, God with us, our Savior Jesus. In the craftiness of the serpent of Eden, however, the only hope of that dream as a divine promise has, over time, been subtly removed. Over time, at first, God's revelation was just branded as being irrelevant. And with time, they have been tagged as mean-spirited. And that as, as his revelation is now quickly becoming the source of all iniquity, inequality, hatred, and heartache in the world. The solution as the spirit of the age has determined for which we are in the beginning phases is to remove all of those people who are standing in the way of Lenin's dream being realized. They are called Christians or better Christ followers. All of this happened very quickly given the grand scheme of things and the grand scheme of history. And with it, there has been an increase also in the pace and in the rapidity with which this race towards oblivion for the deceived goes and the race towards heaven for the faithful continues. Jesus said in Matthew 7, the way is broad that leads to destruction. Nobody believes that today. I am convinced, and I'm talking nobody, meaning at large. Oh, there are some Christians, many Christians, I hope, who actually believe that, but there are Christians, or at least those who wear that name, that don't believe that. The way is broad that leads to destruction, Jesus said. And the way is narrow that leads to life. And few there are who find it. The changes in just my lifetime upending the social fabric of family have been, been profoundly fast. At the same time that the basic roles of men and women in culture were being challenged, there was in fact a fundamental change also taking place in all of society's view of children. Over the years, we have all been reprogrammed like the frog in the kettle. We've been reprogrammed to accept and have come to believe that children, while being God's blessings for some, to others are increasingly a paycheck from a system which rewards sin or an unnecessary drag on personal freedom. 
And I will assert that never before in the history of the human race has adulthood ever been so late in arriving. What is the cause? What I said at the beginning of this. The expectations on children have been in decline for about 150 years. First, one personal and very minor but illustrative example from my childhood of how expectations have changed just in my lifetime. Mature responsibility at an age-appropriate level was an expectation from early, early childhood. Meaning the child didn't come into the world and now suddenly everything revolves around that child or nothing revolves around that child. But rather they were to be and were expected and were indeed part of a family unit. Actually a viable, instructive and constructive and contributing member of the family at an age appropriate level. You were expected to participate in the healthy functioning of the households, meaning you were expected to contribute by way of chores and of helping out and doing whatever the parents needed you to do to help things go along. You were made to believe that as a child even, you actually mattered as a contributing member and an important member of that household. In earlier times, your contribution might even be financial in that you were helping out in the fields in an agrarian culture, and sometimes still on a farm, or you were helping out in the woodshed or the shop or the corral or in the kitchen. Children, you better sit down for this one, you younger folks. Children were expected to earn money. When you wanted something extra or frivolous. I, oh, here we go. I had a newspaper route when I was in fifth grade. The first route that I had was one of those where it wasn't a subscription paper. And the apartment complex that we lived in, I grew up in townhouses after I was eight years old for the rest of my life till I moved or got married, went in the army. It was an immense place with 500 units and every house had to get a paper delivered, fifth grade. Now, the stacks of 500 newspapers, it was like a, a, um, the Two Cent Times, only the Two Cent Times is a very small. This was a full-size newspaper, and 500 copies delivered once a week. They had to be hand-rolled and a rubber band placed on, just to start. And then I would go out, and I had to deliver those papers to every unit in the complex. And that's how I made my money for things that weren't necessities of life. It's called earning. It makes you feel important. And to use the word today that everybody loves, empowered, whatever the heck that means. My second route, I graduated to an actual subscription route, meaning people had to subscribe like the the morning sentinel. So I had my big bag and strap over the shoulder and 20 below zero and three feet of snow, either walking and trudging along with my 35 newspaper subscriptions that I had delivering daily. And then 
I had to go around door to door to my subscribers and I had to collect their weekly money. I learned so much about the sin nature of man when I didn't even know the term. And I learned that children aren't the only ones who lie and lie poorly. I had a ring, a big steel ring, and it had the tab tag on it for every one of my customers. And when they'd pay, I'd punch the tab. When they didn't pay, it didn't get punched. I cannot even tell you the pathetically low rate of collection of adults paying their $2.50 or whatever it was at the time that it was due. Oh, uh, whoa, uh, hey, why don't you catch me next week? All I got is a thousand in my wallet, you know, can you, and I'm sure you can't break that. I'm being facetious. Some of the dumbest reasons and excuses. Could you come back and then you go back the next week? Could you come back? I'd usually go about three weeks and it's like, yeah, no. You see, I was growing in life. You can learn through those experiences and become cynical at a very early age. I thought it was a spiritual gift, but maybe not. Then in seventh grade, I'm just trying to give you a flavor here for the way things were different. Try and imagine this today. We moved to St. Louis now, and I'm living in St. Louis. I'm in seventh grade, and my friend who was in eighth grade... He and I, one summer, we decided, decided that our cash flow was not what it ought to be. So we needed to start our own business. Again, growing up, and this was another apartment complex that was even huger than the one that I'd moved from in Cleveland. And we started our own car wash business. Now, amongst all these units in this, this huge complex, nobody had washers and dryers in their apartment. So there was one building you know, every so often dedicated to a whole laundromat where everybody had to go. So we put up our signs in the laundromat. There was a public bulletin board, car wash with little tear-off tabs with our phone numbers. We were so stinking busy that we could not keep up. I never reported it to the IRS. (laughs) Okay, true confessions. I don't know why that just came to me right now. Is that conviction, Lord? What is that? (laughs) I never had so much spending money in my life. Expectations were much greater. And again, that wasn't in the 1800s or the 1700s. It was in the 60s, the late 60s to boot. Well, what changed What changed was decreased expectations accommodated and facilitated by modernity creating a unicorn called adolescence. Now, why do I say that adolescence is in fact a unicorn? A unicorn is something that doesn't exist. Do you realize that the developmental period today that is called adolescence, which now ranges from the ages of 10 to 25, and that keeps getting pushed, 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 that this is a newfangled development in history and is of recent invention. 
In fact, in the Hebrew language, there isn't even a word for adolescence. Has it never occurred to you when you are watching old movies, and I don't mean movies made in the 60s, 70s, or 80s, but movies that are made about a different epoch in history, does it never, don't, don't you ever find yourself going, man, are you kidding me? Those kids were doing that or they were expected to do this and this is what they were involved in and this is the kinds of responsibilities that they have? I'm thinking of, of, of the John Adams series, okay, which is very historically accurate. And you see a good portrayal in that or if you're more familiar with Pride and Prejudice or, or Wuthering Heights and those kinds of things. The whole, the whole way of children, they're like many adults, because expectations were entirely different. When John Quincy Adams, who was the son of John Adams, was eight years old, listen to some of these, eight years old, he was already marching with the Massachusetts militia and doing uh, weapons drills and training at age eight. At the age of 11, he accompanied his father as official secretary on his diplomatic mission to France. Not just a tag-along, but to be his secretary. At 13, he left his father to travel to Holland and attend Leiden University. And at 14, he was made officially secretary and French interpreter to the American ambassador to Russia. At age 15, he returned alone from St. Petersburg, Russia, to The Hague, a journey of six months. Dr. Benjamin Rush, signer of the Declaration of Independence, often referred to as the father of American medicine, was 14 when he graduated Princeton. Thomas Jefferson was nine when he began to study Latin and Greek. And French. And at 16, he entered William and Mary College. It was not uncommon for American youth to be trilingual and enter college between the ages of 13 and 16. William Livingston, signer of the Constitution, was 14 when he was living as a missionary. Now, listen to this carefully. He was living as a missionary to the Mohawk Indians. He was not living with his missionary parents. He was living as a missionary to the Mohawks, who were the most fierce tribe known in America at the time. And then at 18, he graduated from Yale at the top of his class. John Clem, one more, was 12 years old when he was a soldier at the Battle of Chickamauga in the Civil War, age 12. And he was promoted to sergeant on the battlefield for his heroics and was quickly promoted to lieutenant. All of which, again, begs the question, what changed? Have the genetics of Homo sapien changed ushering in and institutionalized the rest of the development? No. What changed were the wholesale expectations on children. There was an entirely different worldview, an entirely different mindset from today concerning children right into the early 20th century. And then the schoolhouse by design became the incubator 
of social, cultural, and moral change. And in later years, the man John Dewey, who I grew up in school, knowing of him because of why, think library, the Dewey Decimal System. And some of you are going, the what? It was the way books were cataloged in a library. There were only two systems, the Dewey Decimal and the Library of Congress. But John Dewey was a rabid liberal, referring to the classroom of America as the teacher's pulpit, the allusion to the, the, the place of authority and proclamation and preaching and hoping to change minds. Who was responsible for all this? The humanist progressives in education. Francis, Francis Whalen Parker in 1837, was the one who first decided that learning things by rote memorization, everybody knows what rote memorization is, even if you don't. I take a flashcard, I hold it up. It says two times two, and you had to memorize it equals four. And you turn it over, and there's the four. Four times four equals, you got to memorize it. 16, let's try it again. Two times two is four. Two plus two is four. Four times four is what? 16. You memorize it. That's how you got a lot of your knowledge. When did the Revolutionary War begin? Where did it begin? Memorization of facts and knowledge. Later on, application would come if there was necessary application, but it was called a broad, meaningful education of the world and your place in it. That all changed gradually, to be sure, but it changed definitely. Thank you, Francis Parker. He also got rid of standardized testing, as we would come to know it, meaning you have to actually prove your proficiency, and everybody was expected to toe the same line. Nowadays, we focus, thanks to him and others, down the line of the same ilk, on the process of education, not on education of learning things, but on the methodology of how people are supposed to learn things. And I would love to go into, uh, I would love to go into Dr. John Silber, not what we would classically refer to as a conservative. He is the late Dr. Silber, you may remember, not too long ago. He ran for governor of Massachusetts. He was a Boston Democrat. I heard him speak in the mid-80s when he was president of the University of, uh, of, sorry, of Boston University, where he was president for 25 years. And he spoke at what was called the Chautauqua Lectures. And I, I don't know why, I just, I happen to, because I do not listen to NPR for the sake of sanity and intestinal health. And this was on NPR, and he came on, but I heard the subject matter, and I thought, oh, this should be interesting. I was blown away, so much so that I wrote off and I got a copy of it, and I've made CDs of it to hand out to anyone who is willing to listen. His assessment of education, and this was 1985, is absolutely scurrilous by today's standards. For he went back to the early 1900s and the 1800s, to the days and actually read from curriculum from schools of the day. 
Here's what they learned. Here's what their vocabulary words. And then he took in 1985 the curricula that teachers are given where everything, the lesson is scripted out for them, including the answers. Read the sentence. And he was really quite humorous, even though he's very dry. And he said, the prompts, teacher, read the sentence. The cat ran into the house. Ask the students, what is the noun or the subject in the sentence? Answer, cat. And he goes on to rip on the fact that this high calling of teacher has been so dumbed down because teachers today, his words, don't shoot the messenger. His words, teachers coming out of teachers' colleges today in 1985, and it's only worsened, I assure you again, come out not knowing their subject matter, but knowing educational theory. And then he rips unbelievably on the teachers' unions for making it so difficult, nearly impossible, he says, to fire incompetent teachers. And he even says in his lecture, and I'm a Democrat. And it's like, whoo, <laughs> how things have changed. The expectations on children have changed over the years. Parents, we need to step things up and we can step things up. Let me shut this down. We are so fortunate as Paul reminds us that we have a God who sent a Savior in whom all the promises of God find their yes in Him, which is why we say amen to the glory of God. I want to leave you with a poem that I heard from the man Gordon MacDonald many, many, many years ago, and it was in the 70s in Atlanta in a lecture, not a lecture, yeah, I guess a lecture you could call it, that he was giving. Gordon MacDonald was the many years pastor of Grace Chapel in Boston. He ended with this poem. It is anonymous. Nobody really knows where it came from or who wrote it. But it talks about God's love for man and what he does in that love. I love it. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands, while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and which every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. God loves us enough to bring pain into our lives for a greater good for you and for me. I promise you, I will not be on the subject next week.
Let me have you stand. Father in heaven, I pray truly by the power of your Holy Spirit to take all these thoughts and words that I have delivered today in the spirit, I believe, of your heart and mine and your clear revelation to apply it in the lives of everyone here, O Lord. And I know that you will do so because you promise if hearts are open and receptive. Father, I so pray today for the single parent. Life, Lord, and parenting is hard enough when you have a close friend called a spouse together in the task with you. But so many single parents today, Lord, are just working themselves in every way, shape, and form to the point of utter exhaustion. And dear God in heaven, my intent is not at all to heap any kind of further burden upon them, but only to give your words of wise counsel that they might in fact help. And to those family units, Lord, that are still together, that they might make changes necessary before it is too late. God, you are such a good God that in love you always speak the truth. I pray, Father. I pray mercifully, graciously, and gently. Help us to learn these lessons for your glory and praise. Amen.